Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Tom Ord. Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He is also the author of the recently released book, The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Amnipotence. You can get connected with Tom and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Tom J. Ord with me. Uh, Tom, I think at this point, you might be the most frequented guest on this podcast. Like, oh, man, what an It's got to be like the fourth or fifth or maybe even sixth time. Who knows? Who's even keeping track at this point? Well, I appreciate you hosting me. It's an honor to be on this show. It is. It's a, always a good time when I get to hang out with you. So, well, let's let's have you introduce yourself. I feel like I've introduced you so many times on this podcast, but who is Tom Ord to Tom Ord? Tom Ord is a lover. Oh, at least that's his goal. He <laughs> wants to be a lover, a lover of creation, others, enemies, himself, God. Tom's a lover. He's also a scholar, a writer, a husband, a father, a friend, hopefully, uh, but most foremost, uh, someone who really wants to live a life of love. And an avid photographer. I always just get so jazzed whenever you post one of those cool uh, photography kind of trips that you do when you go out uh, in the middle of nowhere and you uh, just you, you show it all off where you pretty much you're probably your backyard. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. When I was in Colorado and saw you recently, I was looking at those mountains thinking I need to get in those mountains and make some photographs. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, if you ever do, you let me know and I'll, uh, I'll come and hang out with you. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I, I like, I like to hike a little bit. I'm, I'm less of a camper. I, I just like don't sleep super well when it's like really, really yeah. cold or like yeah. even like the little uh, ma- like mattress pad things that you bring yep. along. Usually when you go camping, they never they never they're not like squishy enough for me. Yeah, <laughs> they're not yeah. comfortable. But you know what? Even one night of sleep where I don't get, you know, the best of sleep. That's fine. As long as it means <laughs> that I get to hang out with you and breathe in the fresh air. I love it. <laughs> well, let's chat about the new book. Uh, at this point, you're pretty much releasing one or two books a year. And so, of course, I have to get you on the podcast whenever a new book comes out. You Thank have a new you. book called The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence," And it is 
it's so cool. It's just like you're basically creating your own categories now. Like I feel like you are a true theologian at this point. You're you're marking your territory. You're hoping that 500 years from now people are using the word amnipotence, and I love that. So we're gonna chat all about amnipotence. Uh, but before we kind of dive into the contents of the book, what did you learn about yourself as you wrote this book? You've written so many books at this point. I don't know if there's really a, a learning experience at this point, but Maybe there was. Was there something that you learned about yourself as you wrote this book? Um, every book I write, I have a general idea where I want to go, but then I learn something new along the way. Uh, usually it's new about the, the topics in the book. But in terms of learning about myself, I guess what I learned is kind of more of a realization than like a, a new piece of data. It's, a, it's something that I uh, probably knew before, but I didn't realize it's in the same way. And that is, I have had the benefit of being educated in a variety of disciplines. You know, I, I mm. grew up an evangelical Christian, so the Bible was super important. So I took Greek, and I know Greek, and took some Hebrew. I've forgotten most of that. But uh, uh, so, you know, I had this like really deep biblical studies background. But I've also been a philosopher from birth, I think, but I've always got kind of a thought that way. Um, you know, I used to teach philosophy at the undergraduate level and and my uh, degree is in philosophy and religion. So it's kind of multidisciplinary. So when I got done with this book, I said to myself, you know, my background, my history, my training has prepared me to write a book that has such diverse topics and mm -hmm. draws from such diverse areas. Yeah, you definitely get a dosage of biblical studies, obviously, especially in that first chapter. And then you dive into the philosophy side of things. And then you obviously also get a lot of the theology side of things. And I think the one of the coolest things about you that you're you're kind of not telling everyone is the science side of you as well. Mm -hmm. Like you actually have some really cool science stuff uh, in your background as well. Yeah, that's actually been, I mean, for a while in my life, that was the, the leading part of who I was. I did a lot mm -hmm. of lecturing and writing books on science and religion, and I still care a lot about that. So it's just that it's kind of moved in the background a little bit more today than it was at mm -hmm. one time. Well, you mentioned just a little bit ago that, you know, with every book that you write, obviously you're doing some level of research. Was there anything in the research of this book that came up where you're like, I didn't know that before? Obviously, you've written about omnipotence before. You've thought about these things. So maybe some of it wasn't exactly new. But was there anything new in the research for this book that you're like, did not know that? Yes, quite a few things. So in the biblical chapter, I make the argument that the Bible simply does not support the idea that God is omnipotent and not just not omnipotent, not even that God is almighty. I knew about the problem with the Hebrew word Shaddai that really means breasts or mountains, but has been mm -hmm. mistranslated as almighty. But I didn't realize that Sabaoth, another major Hebrew word, which means hosts and combined with God means Lord of hosts. I didn't realize that one also had been mistranslated as almighty. So that was a new thing going through this book. And then like there were some really cool, like nerdy, small things like here, here's here's something for your folks to, who are nerds, Bible nerds to to check out. Um, you know, in Hebrew language, we've had these words. And if they're prefaced by uh, words that we usually translate as God, like El, uh, Yahweh, Adonai, mm -hmm. those words. 
then we put that word uh, L, let's say, for God, along with the word that follows it. Sabaoth, in this case, we have Lord of hosts or God of hosts. Every time the word Sabaoth appears in scripture, and it's not preceded by a word that means God, the translators translate it as hosts. But if they precede it by the word God, it gets translated as almighty. And this is mm. important because it's like it's a totally arbitrary decision by the translators that really came from the Septuagint. But now I'm getting too too nerdy for everybody. But I just That's I didn't know that before writing this book. Huh. I you know, I, I did take Hebrew when I was in college. I've also forgotten most of my Hebrew, but that was something that I don't recall ever learning was the fact that if you put some word like that in front of God, then it might mean something entirely different, or at least it's translated as something entirely different than uh, if that word was by itself. Had no idea. I didn't either. And and really, it's it's not something that English translators have to do. But the reason so many have done it is because in about the fourth century BCE, there is this translation of the Hebrew into Greek called the Septuagint. And those people chose to translate those words as Pantocrator, which later got translated as omnipotent. But anyway, hmm. um, all kinds of translation decisions come into play. And that chapter says people just got it wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm bold, <laughs> but I'm, right. it's not me making the claim. It's like I'm relying upon biblical scholars just to say, look, I'm not the weirdo here. The biblical scholars are saying we've mistranslated the Bible. It's just that very few of them want to stick their heads up high enough to say, uh, and it's about omnipotence that we've mistranslated. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show how much of your own theology goes into translation. We think of Definitely. we think of translation as being this like very objective practice, but it really is not. You are very much forcing your theology into it, and I think being aware of that uh, because I think everybody's going to now we can try our best to be as faithful as possible, but at the end of the day, I think we're going to be making uh, choices when it comes to translation based on our theology, and all of us do that. And so I think we just need to be really honest of how that's happening and when that happens. Totally agree. I like to say every biblical translation is actually an interpretation. Mm -hmm. There's always mm -hmm. interpretation going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's chat about the book. Obviously, the first part of the title, The Death of Omnipotence, I think we at least need to talk about omnipotence. So okay. <laughs> for those who have missed every other interview, every other Tom Ord <laughs> interview, and clearly have not already gotten a full dosage of why you despise omnipotence, let's talk about omnipotence. Can okay. you explain for the person who has maybe maybe grown up Christian but has never really studied theology, what exactly is omnipotence? How would you explain it to a person who maybe is familiar with Christianity, but has no idea about any of the, the sort of theology around Christianity. The word literally means all power or all powerful. Mm. Omni means all, potent means power. And so it has been used in the history of Christianity, Islam, and often in, by many Jews uh, to describe God's power. Now, what does it actually mean? Well, there's all kinds of debate about that. But I think it usually means one of three things. Omnipotence either means God does absolutely everything. God is omnicausal, you might say. Or it means God uh, has all the power or could do anything. But the big one is 
that God is omnipotent in the sense that God can control others or circumstances. And it's that last one that has been so important in the history of Christianity because it said, look, God is in control or at least could be in control. And as you know, there's all kinds of problems with saying that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and again, with the title being the death of omnipotence, that to me implies that there was a birth of omnipotence, at least within Christian theology. Can you talk just briefly? I know you don't really dive too much into that in this book, but can you talk about how this idea of omnipotence came into Christianity? Because it's not as if this has been a part of the, especially the Jewish uh, tradition, theological tradition, but certainly at some point he actually even came into play in the Christian theological tradition, but it hasn't been there every single time. You know, it's, it hasn't been this uh, concept that every single Christian has always believed. So can you talk a little yeah. bit about how omnipotence actually was born, developed into Christian theology? Yeah. So here's the story. There's, it's nowhere in what Christians call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. It's just not there. But when some Greek scholars translated the Hebrew into Greek in this, you know, in what's called the Septuagint, they chose a Greek word to describe God. And that word is pantocrator. Pan means all. Crater means holding. So uh, someone who holds all things. You might have heard of God is described as the one who holds all things together. That's not the same as, same as controlling all things, but that was the word chosen, pantocrator. Then when we come to the New Testament, that word pantocrator appears only 10 times in the entire New Testament. Nine of those in the book of Revelation, one of them in which the apostle Paul is quoting from the pantocrator. Mm. So it's a very rare word in the New Testament. There's no word in the New Testament that means omnipotent. The, if there if there was something that could have been that, it would be this Greek word dunamai added with the word pan, like a, something like pan dunamai, but that's nowhere in the New Testament. So we've got this word pantocrator that's not in the Old Testament, appears in the Septuagint, and then is used 10 times in the New Testament, which is not many at all. And then in the fourth century, a guy named Jerome is translating the scriptures into Latin. And he chooses the word omnipotence, omnipotent. And that word is then picked up and used in the creeds, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And that's how it emerges. Not in scripture. It comes from the Greek tr uh, translation. And then in writing the Vulgate, Jerome screws it up for everybody <laughs> by coining this word omnipotence to describe God's power. It's interesting that he's doing this around the time that the Council of Nicaea is beginning to meet. Yes. Uh, you know, it's around the time that Constantine uh, converts to Christianity. And I was just listening to this podcast episode about, it was from a, a scholar who does like a lot of history of Christianity stuff. And he was talking about how Constantine, um, because the Roman Empire was so divided at the time, he was looking for a way to unite the empire, and he saw that the there was something about the oneness of Christianity, right? That that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human, and that God is one. All of this, he's trying to find a way to unite the Roman Empire. And this scholar would argue that Constantine found that Christianity was a great way to uh, to unite an empire, but 
even within Christianity at that time, there was still a lot of debates about, you know, does God, you know, is God begotten from the son, blah, 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 blah. Right. right. There's all, all the these debates about stuff. the nature yeah. of Christ, the nature yeah. of, of God. And so even though he saw that you Christianity could be something that unites the empire, Christianity itself was very divided. Yep. And so he made these choices of trying to figure out ways to actually develop orthodox theology around some of these things that have been divisive among Christians at that time. Uh, and so anyway, this the scholar's making this argument, and I kind of wonder, you know, with Jerome kind of taking this— uh, taking the freedom to translate it as omnipotence, you know, maybe that plays a part into this historical moment of Constantine trying to unite the Roman Empire by using Christianity and therefore needing Christianity to be completely united in, th- in theology. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's something there. Yeah, I think it's a strong argument. And, and, and related to it is the argument that a, a leader who wants to exert as much power as possible, maybe even controlling power, and knows that some people believe in a God and want to imitate that God, wouldn't that leader want to portray God as someone who has either all power, at least controlling power, so that kind of Mm -hmm. legitimizes what the uh, leader is doing? I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that Adolf Hitler liked to call God the Almighty. And I think in part because it legitimizes his own controlling mm-hmm. kind of approach to reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really connects to some of the stuff that I even talked about in my thesis, where a lot of our theology is a projection onto what we want ourselves to be like. Sure. Yep. No doubt about that. So we, you're, we're talking about some of the biblical issues with omnipotence. We've talked even just really briefly about some of just the general historic issues with omnipotence coming into Christianity several centuries after Jesus. Let's talk about the philosophical issues, right? So there are clearly just issues philosophically with omnipotence. Can you talk through some of those? I would imagine theodicy is going to be one of those. But yeah, what are some of those philosophical issues with omnipotence that just don't add up and don't make sense? Well, in the book, I decided to set aside the questions of evil and make a whole chapter for that. And focus primarily on analytic philosophy and the history in Christianity, quoting orthodox conservative theologians who all want to qualify what they mean by omnipotence. So, you know, I start off the chapter by talking about a question I was asked as an undergraduate. Can God make a rock so big that even God can't lift it? And it's, you know, one of those paradoxes. Philosophers and theologians, they've been asking and struggling with these questions for for a long, long time. And there are very, 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 very few people uh, who don't qualify what they mean by omnipotence. They'll say things like, God can't do what is illogical. God can't do what goes against mathematics. God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 397. God can't do what goes against geometry. And then they start focusing on God's nature. So if God necessarily exists, God can't die. If God is always truthful, God can't tell a lie. If God is omnipresent, God can't be absent somewhere. And so all these qualifications start moving along. And in Mm -hmm. this chapter, I'm not saying a lot of new things until I get near the end. I'm just telling the readers this idea of qualifying divine power is something that every smart person has been doing for centuries and centuries. 
but no one's really stopped and, and asked the question, um, should we continue to call God omnipotent if we have to qualify it in so many ways? <laughs> so I called the, the chapter, Omnipotence Dies a Death of a Thousand Qualifications. So l- let's let's then talk about then evil, because obviously that is a, a big piece to it. Can you talk through, again, for those who are completely unfamiliar with this, like why the problem of evil is so, uh, it really throws a wrench into the logic of omnipotence? Yeah. So most believers have wanted to say God is perfectly loving and omnipotent. And then bad things happen, things that make the world worse than it might have been, genuine evils. So you would think that a perfectly loving God who had the power to stop those genuine evils would use that power to stop them. And yet, you know, in our personal lives, in our social lives, and even the natural world, things happen that make things worse. There are, there's pointless pain and unnecessary suffering. And so the question is, why wouldn't God prevent those with that omnipotent power? And of course, I'm not the first who to question omnipotence in the face of evil. Uh, you and I have been uh, very influenced by the process theological tradition. Their process people are well known for questioning omnipotence based primarily on this problem of evil. Uh, and so in this chapter, I go into details on that kind of question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. I feel like we've exhausted omnipotence uh, okay. and I feel like it's dead now. We can, we can <laughs> <Good>. move on. <laughs> Let's talk about now the birth of amnipotence. So can you talk about what you mean by amnipotence? Yeah. So amnipotence comes from the word ami is the Latin prefix for love. And then, of course, potence is power. And um, I noticed in writing my previous books, God Can't, The Uncontrolling Love of God and some others, that so many people thought they had to choose either between an omnipotent God who does everything or could control and an impotent God, a God Mm. who does nothing, God who sits up on Mars eating popcorn, watching us from a distance. And they didn't realize there might be some, some other alternatives than a God who does everything and a God who does nothing. And I, I believe, you know, as you know, from our previous conversations, I think when it comes to God, we ought to start with love. Mm -hmm. I think there's biblical reasons to do that. There's moral intuition reasons to do that. So the word omnipotence, the power of love, the power of uncontrolling love, is a way to say, if we're going to talk about God's power and what God can and can't do, let's start with love and see where that gets us. Can you talk about how love relates to power, right? Like just even in our personal relationships, right? Like there is something like there already are power dynamics that happen in any relationship, not just our relationship with God, but even our relationship with one another. There's different power that we all have. Um, And yet, even though there's a power dynamic between you and your spouse, there's still you would describe as love. So can you talk about how love kind of plays into this like power dynamic that happens in all relationships? Yeah. So I think love is real action. It's not passive. It's not sitting around doing nothing. It's actually acting, but mm. in such a way that acts for the well-being of others and invites response, invites cooperation. 
the most powerful people in the world are not the people who win at the Olympics in the weightlifting contest. The most powerful people in the world are those who are able to persuade others to mm. join with them towards some cause or some purpose. Mm -hmm. I think God is the most powerful because God is present to all creation, not just humans, but top to bottom, simple to complex, always acting for the good of creation and then calling, inviting cooperation. And when that cooperation occurs, we see powerful things happen in the in the universe. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love about process theology is it thinks about God's power as persuasive, as you're talking about, and right. not coercive, that God's power can't just unilaterally do something that doesn't require the cooperation of the world. And I really think that that's key. What I'm kind of curious about is, you know, process theology and even open and relational theology proposes this. How is that potentially different? Or what are you sort of contributing or adding on to that with amnipotence that is different than what process or open and relational theology has already uh, talked about with God's power? Yeah, I think sort of the, the big thing is that many open relational process people have wanted to question the classic views of God's power, including omnipotence, but they really haven't offered a very clear alternative. And most of them have not articulated what alternative they do have in the light of love. So omnipotence is saying, okay, I believe in love. God is a God of love. And by that, I mean, God acts intentionally in relational response to promote overall well-being. So I've got my little definition of what love is. And God always does this because it's God's nature. And God simply can't control because of this love. Um, I'm not saying no one else in the open and relational community uh, thinks like this, but I'm, I'm also saying I don't think everybody does. And I think it's a kind of a contribution I'm, I'm offering. Yeah, I love that there is like the kind of this constructive approach, right? Like there has been this deconstructive approach about God's power that happens in the open relational process camp. But what you're doing is actually creating a way of thinking about power that is actually a constructive way of thinking about God's power. Exactly. And one of the things I do in this book that I have not done in previous books um, is I ask the question about God's uh, ontology or composition. You know, you and I have power uh, related to the fact that we have bodies and we can lift books, we can throw rocks, we can pump weights. Uh, but God doesn't have a divine body like that. Now, you know, we're God's metaphorical hands and feet. The world mm -hmm. is God's body, metaphorically speaking. But um, I'm with actually the classic tradition in thinking that God is an omnipresent spirit without an actual divine hands, feet, nose, teeth and tongue. And that then means that I, in this book, I try to really carefully lay out what this omnipresent spirit does and how we perceive it, how we can cooperate with it. So mm. there's a lot of kind of nerdy divine action stuff in that last chapter. Yeah, I, I love getting into like some of that nerdy stuff. Do you want to flesh a little bit more of that out of just like God's ontology and how that relates to God's love and God's power? Yeah. So in the tradition, people have typically, let's take Thomas Aquinas, who's probably the most influential philosophical theologian in Christianity. He's wanted to say God is invisible, but immaterial. 
And, mm -hmm. and by that, he meant you and I are material, we have material dimensions, but God has no material dimension. And because of him and Augustine and others, we've had this split in Christianity that we've called uh, dualism, that there's material things in the world, that's the, the rocks, the trees, uh, maybe some creatures, then there are spiritual things or mental things in the world. And those, the spiritual things are God, angels, demons. And then humans, we're kind of this interesting mix. We have physical material bodies, but we have minds or spiritual souls. And this kind of dualism has been the major view in Christianity. There's lots of problems with dualism. And I'm sure your guests have explored them. But one of them is, how does this spiritual thing interact with the material stuff? Mm. And in humans, the question has been, how does the mind interact with the body? If the mind is purely spiritual or mental and the body is purely physical, well, how does that work? Well, one of the major contributions of process theology, including people like um, Alfred North Whitehead, David Ray Giff Griffin, they said, you know, maybe we ought to think not only about ourselves and the world as comprised of entities that have both material and mental dimensions, what most people call panpsychism or panexperientialism, mm -hmm. what I call material mental monism. But as I argue in this chapter, God also has material and mental dimensions. Mm. And that is a different way for most people to think. Mm -hmm. God is still spiritual in the sense of like being like wind that you can't see uh, or being like a mind that's in your, your head, but you don't see the mind. God, so it's, it's like that. But there's this material dimension to God that's similar to the material dimension our minds have, but also the, the uh, mental dimensions. So you're saying that that material is actually similar to the material of the world like yes, that god yes, could yes. be comprised of electrons and particles in the same way that fundamentally we are as well yeah i wouldn't probably say electrons and neutrons but yeah that the, something material is part of god's ontology or god's being god's composition mm, uh, I, yeah I, I like that i like that this episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. Can you talk a little bit about, again, this like interaction that, has, that plays out with love and power, mm. specifically in our human relationships? You know, the, the, 
the beauty of love is that love is inherently uncontrollable, yeah. right? That's part of the beauty of love is that you can't control someone you love. That also means that there's a risk to love as well in the yeah. fact that you can't control them in the way that you want to, right? You know, when, when somebody, you know, you, you, have, you have daughters and I'm sure when they were growing up because you loved them, there were times where you were wanting to just be like, this is just how it is going to be and you can't do anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, when they're wanting to get in trouble and you're just like, you just, it's not going to happen. That's part of the risk of love is that you can't control them in the way that you want. But nope. also the beauty of love is the fact that you can't control that love uh, or you can't control them uh, like you were, omni you know, omnipotent. So can you talk about just how that plays out in our human relationships and why you think then that that must be the way that God loves and that that God's power is like that as well. Um, because I think a lot of theologians that have more of that conventional or traditional understanding of God think that, oh yeah, God can love us, but somehow is also omnipotent. But yeah, what we're yeah. arguing is that love is necessarily not omnipotent. It can't control everything. So can you talk about how those human relationships happen and why we think then then that still is a great way of thinking about God and that God is not some sort of an exception to that? Yeah, yeah. So let me start by saying what I mean by control. Control, as I'm using the word, means that one individual is the sole or only cause of the outcomes for another. So if God is controlling, God alone would bring about outcomes. You and I would have no input. God would single-handedly determine the results of what happens. We're puppets, to use that, that mm -hmm. metaphor. Now, we know in our personal relationships that if people try to control others by being the only voice, that things go bad pretty fast. Um, some people will comply even though they have freedom to do otherwise because they're worried about bodily harm or reputation harm or whatever. But it, we rarely have ever think that is a loving action if one person tries to control the other. And so for most people, if you say, well, love is uncontrolling, they say, yeah, of course, you know. But then there are occasions in which uh, we do things that seem that some people describe as controlling that we also think are loving. For instance, if your two-year-old is about ready to pick up a sharp knife and cut herself, well, you're probably gonna reach out with your hand and prevent her hand from picking up the knife. You're gonna thwart, at least partially, her free will. And isn't that a loving thing? Well, I certainly think it is. So then people say, well, maybe loving is most, I mean, controlling is mostly unloving except in rare circumstances and then once you open up that door then of course then gods can be loving and control sometimes and we got all kinds of problems the problem of evil comes right back at us right like if god can control sometimes why doesn't god prevent all the evils of the world so here i want to say love is never controlling for god and never controlling for us but god can't control and you and I can't control either. But what makes us different from God is that you and I have bodies. You and I can sometimes reach out and grab the arm of a two-year-old 
God never has a divine body to do that. God can ask us to do that, but that's different than God doing it. Mm. So um, being careful to say control means being the only cause helps us to make, you know, make progress. And, but secondly, to distinguish between creatures with bodies and a universal spirit of love. Mm. We were talking yesterday about miracles and it's it's interesting when we talk about those miracles, it's not as if in those stories there's some sort of physical description of God, right? That God comes into the story, we know what God looks like, God does a thing that we would describe as miraculous, and then all of a sudden God's out of the story now, right? Yeah, Whenever yeah. we talk about miracles, it is it is something miraculous happening through our material world, whether it's through right. a person, whether it's through wine, it could be through a couple uh, loaves of bread and fish, but there's right. something that happens through the material world that we describe as miraculous, which we would just, we would probably say, hey, God was part of, part of that. So it's interesting that when we then talk about power and love with God, we also probably describe it in that same way of how God works and acts through us. God's power and God's love acts through us, not as God like coming into a moment and intervening in a way that our bodies would be able to, uh, but God is doing that through, uh, through the world, through material. Right. Yeah, man, I'm so glad you said that. I totally agree. Um, which, you know, most people have started by saying miracles must be God acting alone. And therefore, you know, people in the open or especially the process community have said, well, I don't think God ever unilaterally determines an event. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you know, I don't think God does miracles. And I've said, well, maybe there's we should just start with a different definition of a miracle. Maybe we can believe there are miracles that happen as surprisingly unexpected good events in the world and think God was present, active, calling, empowering, inspiring to make those happen. But always, as you put it, through or in cooperation with creatures and the material world. Mm -hmm. And then miracles can come back on the table. But we also don't have to blame God when miracles don't happen, because if we could say, well, the conditions of creation weren't conducive for that miracle, or there wasn't cooperation that was required. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of this idea that happen, that you see in process quite often, where God contains all of these possibilities, mm -hmm. and in process, the process understanding of the unfolding, the becoming of every moment. I think process theologians would say God is a part of that initial aim. And so yes. if God contains all these possibilities and is uh, making those possibilities an initial aim that then the world can respond to, you, you would then think that maybe some of those possibilities are possibilities that haven't actually ever happened in the world prior. Uh, right. And so I often think about miracles in that way of maybe this is just one of those possibilities that hasn't happened before, uh, but yep. because it is a possibility in the life of God and God then um, making that an initial aim. And if the, if a creature responds to that in a certain way, maybe it can actually happen. I totally agree with you. That's how I think about it, too. I would add a caveat, however. Um, if we say God presents these possibilities, and some of them never happened before, very unusual, uh, that we would call miracles, we want to always be careful, I think, to say that God can't just arbitrarily throw these possibilities down there 
And therefore, when miracles don't happen, it's because God, you know, did a poor job of offering possibilities. Mm. I think we need to need to always say God offers possibilities, some of them novel in relation to what's really possible in the situation, what's relevant, what the context mm. provides. And, you know, we're surprised sometimes of what's really possible, but not anything is possible in any situation. Mm. That's a, that's a good way to put it. You know, like somebody who had cancer, let's say thousands of years ago, the possibilities of surviving that cancer are quite different than right. they would be with modern technology today. And therefore, what we would think of as a miracle with the possibilities that are actually possible are going to be quite different than, let's say, thousands of years ago with that person maybe miraculously surviving cancer. Yep. And as far as we know, Today, it's impossible for a human to live on Jupiter. Mm. But in the future, that might change. It mm. might become possible because circumstances are different. Humans get, you know, new ways of being in the world and living in space or whatever. So mm. what's possible? And, and when that happens, I will be happy to say that's a miracle because I think God is at work in the world and creatures cooperate and sometimes surprising things can happen. Like humans mm -hmm. can learn how to live on Jupiter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've already touched on this a little bit before, but one of the frustrating assumptions that people have about open and relational and process theology is that believing that God is not all powerful means that God can't do anything. And <laughs> yeah. so can you talk a little bit more about this understanding of God's power in this open and relational theology that God's power is not necessarily like impotent, like you said before, but actually is even the most powerful? Yes, I think God has the maximal power possible for a being whose nature is love. I think God has the maximal power expressed by anything in the entire universe. This is no wimpy God that we're putting on the table. Right. However, I don't think God can ever control anyone or anything. I like to put it this way. I'm trying to offer a really plausible view of God's power in light of the actual world we live in with mm. good and evil occurring. The actual Bible we have, which doesn't say God is omnipotent, but says God does amazing things. So actually looking at the evidence in all of its dimensions, I think, points to this omnipotence that I propose in the book. Mm -hmm. You even so we've, we've kind of talked a little bit about like some of the, the critiques that more traditional theologians would make or have made about an open relational theology and certainly the critiques they would make about amnipotence. One of the arguments that you don't hear so often, but I also find really interesting to at least entertain, is the arguments that atheists would make against something like amnipotence right. uh, and not believing that God is omnipotent. So can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the critiques you have heard or would potentially hear from those who actually don't believe in God, um, but what they, if they were to believe in God, they would maybe make arguments that God has to be this way. But yeah, can you talk a little bit about kind of some of those arguments that you would maybe hear and how then you would respond to some of those arguments? Yeah, I mean, I think the best arguments atheists make about God are made about the God I don't believe in also. Right. But let's suppose that they were to make some arguments against my God, a God who actually exists, who actually acts in the world, but can't control and therefore isn't responsible for evil 
you know, uh, I can affirm evolution, you know, I can affirm that revelations from God are never crystal clear. And so their errors, you know, I can, I can overcome all kinds of obstacles atheists would give to the typical view of God when I offer mine, but maybe they would look at my view of God and say, well, okay, I'll grant you God can't control. God isn't omnipotent, but I still think I can give a better account of the world without having to appeal to a loving God. And maybe their best argument would be uh, what we consider good and evil and love Mm -hmm. is an evolutionary uh, feature. And we're creatures of evolution, which I would agree we're we're evolution's part of who we are. But they would say our views of right and wrong and morals and all that stuff is entirely derived from the evolutionary process. I think that would be a pretty good argument. Now, I've got some responses to it. But um, my responses would have to do with why sometimes we seem compelled to go against what evolution tells us is to our own best interest. Why should we love enemies? Why should we love other species when it might undermine our own evolutionary Mm. advantage? So I got some responses, but um, I just want to acknowledge that most atheistic objections to God are to a God I also don't believe in. Right. And those objections to my God, which are so rare, I can't even think of a good example, but let's say they're out there. Um, I've been thinking about those objections too. And I think I've got some answers. Yeah. I have a friend who's a pantheist, not a panentheist, and yeah. they've made arguments about, and I, and I find them actually really compelling, but they've made arguments about the fact that maybe God actually isn't all good as well. God exists, but God is not all good nor all loving uh, and certainly not omnipotent, but God exists. And I find that really interesting to think about God in that way. And I think there is at least some room within Whitehead's thought to think about God in that way, where God is maybe not necessarily all loving. Um, I do think at the end of the day, I do want a God, if God does exist, to be all loving and not necessarily be like morally ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah, I've got two kind of responses to that approach. One is it doesn't fit our moral intuitions. I think our moral intuitions are that we want to worship that which is worship worthy. And that usually means something that's good, loving, moral things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's a philosophical one. My second argument against deism that everything is God is even stronger. And that is if everything is God, then Donald Trump is God. Mm. And I don't find that appealing at all. Right. So this argument that God maybe is like morally ambiguous, not necessarily all loving, not necessarily yeah. all good, it it's interesting. When I hear that, I often actually think that that's maybe closer to Whitehead's understanding of creativity as ultimate, yes. where creativity can be morally ambiguous, where maybe that creates that the thing that happens within creativity in the world could be good or it could be evil um but yeah. it's morally ambiguous and and so i find that really interesting that this this some of these pan, pantheist understandings of god that are not all good they seem actually more in line with whitehead's understanding of creativity as ultimate than god as ultimate I totally agree. So those who are listening to this podcast or watching on video who think creativity, God, what's going on there? Uh, In Whitehead's thought, Whitehead distinguishes between God as an actual entity or Hartshorn says a series. But anyway, between God and then the driving impulse of all things that exist. And he calls that creativity. 
It's called by Bergson, Elan Vital, the life force. Uh, it's the Tao in Taoism. So Whitehead distinguishes between those two. And you're right. Creativity is just the force of going forward, the power of the universe. And it's neither good nor evil inherently. Mm-hmm. It's what creatures who have that force in them, God, us, etc. It's what we do with that that makes it morally good or bad. I happen to think God always does the good. God's nature is good. You and I can choose to do evil, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think there's a lot going on there. But there's another reason. There's another group of people who are more traditional Christians, more traditional theists, not Whiteheadian pantheists, who say God is all powerful, but then want to sort of fudge when it comes to God being all loving. Mm. And what their usual, their way of going about it is to say, well, God's all loving, but it's just a love that we can't understand. It's totally different from ours. It's mm. in another category, you know. So they um, they'll appeal to they 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 somehow know that God is perfectly, or they somehow know that God is omnipotent, but they play the mystery card in understanding God's love. Right. It you you see like verses like you know that. God's love or God's goodness is beyond our understanding. And yeah. I often kind of get a little irked that people un- like interpret beyond our understanding as that God's love or God's goodness is an exception to right. the love and goodness of the world rather than beyond our understanding mean God's love is more. It's, it's, it's more expansive. It's greater than the love or power that we could ever imagine. And yep. uh, rather than being an exception, it's really this exemplification that is just beyond our wildest ideas. Like whatever little finite understanding of love that we've experienced in our lives, God's love is even much more. I totally agree. So uh, with that said, let, last couple of questions here. How do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers? Well, this book has four chapters, and each four chapter, each of the four chapters are very different from one another. Together, I think they make a cohesive argument. Mm-hmm. But I can see some people, especially people for whom the Bible is super important, they're really going to like that first Bible chapter. At least maybe like, maybe they don't like it, but at least it's going to challenge them. So that chapter is kind of aimed toward them. Mm-hmm. There's another group of people who are philosophical, and I already know lots of analytic philosophers who are wrestling with my arguments in the second chapter. Most people, when they think about theology, they're going to think about the problem of evil, and that third chapter is where they're at. And then there's people who are like, okay, I've heard all the arguments for why omnipotence doesn't work. Uh, What does God actually do? And Mm. that's where I'm proposing that last chapter. Here's a way to think about God's love and power that makes sense with scripture, that makes sense with the way the world works, that overcomes all the other problems we've been looking at in this book. So that chapter is aimed for people who want a constructive alternative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you think that that constructive alternative of omnipotence could be liberating for people in the world? Maybe, maybe it could be like material, you know, social liberation, but also interpersonal liberation as well. Yeah, boy, there's so many ways I can answer that. Let me talk about social first. If you're a person who believes that the world in its current form has major problems, and you're an activist, you're trying to change it to make a better place, you might worry that you're doing this all alone, that Mm. it's all on your shoulders, 
that uh, God is up on Mars and you're down here and you don't have any interaction. I hope my last chapter shows that God is present, active, and perhaps most empower, uh, important, empowering every activist who wants to see the world become a better place. They're not on their own. The spirit of love is at work in personal lives and social lives, even in the civilization, down to the quirks. God is active, moving, empowering, never controlling, but a necessary element in the work for justice and love. Mm. And how about for like interpersonal relationships, you know, wh whether it's yeah. between you and someone's close or your relationship with yourself? How, how do you see omnipotence being something that really can be liberating for, for someone? Yeah, I mean, everything I said about the social thing applies to the personal, but I think when it comes to personal relationships, at least I'll think about my own life here, um, you know, I'm constantly asking myself, how do I best love uh, my neighbor, my wife, the people who don't like me on Facebook, my kid, my grandchildren? And it's reassuring to me to know that God is inviting and calling me to do what's good. But it's also an important reminder to me that a God of love who doesn't control uh, and whom I want to imitate means that I ought to not be a controlling grandfather, a controlling mm. controller of my enemies, of my wife or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that's an important element as well. Yeah, I've often I've often like think about, you know, there aren't too many process theologians who go on to become dictators. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of any. <laughs> Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah. Well, Tom, how can listeners get connected to you and your work and uh, where should they get the book? Well, The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence, which is the title, is available on all online booksellers, at least all the, the major ones. Um, you can check me out at my website, thomasjord.com. Uh, I would especially invite those listeners who are interested in open and relational theology to join Mason and me at the Center for Open and Relational Theology. That's the letter C, the number four, and then ORT.com. Lots of great resources there. Lots of great resources and lots of fun things constantly happening. You got the conference coming up. Yes. You've got so many things going on uh, with, with the center. Yep. Yep. It's, it's pretty great. Well, like uh, like you mentioned, I am a partner with with, uh, with you all, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. Tom, thank You're you so much. I feel like this is just an annual tradition, maybe even semi-annual at this point because of how often you're writing books. But thank you so much for chatting more about the book. I think this is such an incredible resource for folks, uh, especially your biblical analysis was really, really great for me. Obviously, being in the process world, I've heard a lot of the philosophical arguments sure. talking with someone like yourself. But to actually really dive into the biblical text was really, really cool. So thank you so much for writing the book. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should have said this earlier, but, um, you know, I changed my mind about God's omnipotence a long time ago, and I kind of did it. This is going to sound bad to some of your listeners, but I'll say it anyway. I kind of did it despite what I thought the Bible said. <laughs> and then writing this book, I thought, wow, I actually have the Bible on my side for this thing. <laughs> so anyway. Well, at least the Bible's earlier. on your side for one thing, but uh, I don't know about all the other things. I love it. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Tom. Sure.
If you'd like to connect with Tom and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.